um, we're kind of continuing in this series in Ephesians, but we, I mentioned that our staff got to go away a couple of weeks ago uh, to Kansas City and uh, spend some time away. It was on the backside of that, that brain start to like really think through, okay, what did we just learn? And uh, the whole conference was based on a glorious calling as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, being called by God to do the work of God in the world. My role is to call you to come alongside and let's do it together. Like it doesn't elevate me. It just, I'm the guy who stands up front most weeks to call us to follow Jesus. But in that comes this reality of this text. If we're not called to this first, we are called to nothing indeed. And so as we wrestle with this idea of salvation, what I've specifically been wrestling with and kind of been wrecked by this week in particular is this idea of faith. Faith is not something that I can teach you. I can stand up here week after week and I can come to this text week after week and I can teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. And I cannot teach you faith. I cannot teach you salvation. I cannot teach you grace. I have three young kids and the reality is I can't teach them either can't. I can try. I can point them to Jesus. We can come to this text over and over again, but I can't save them. I can't save you. There's nothing in my power that can make you follow Jesus. How do you like that for an introduction? The reality is I cannot teach you faith. What was said last week in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, I'm going to read them again, about Jesus is true about us in this passage. Listen to this. This is Ephesians 1, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. What is true of Christ for those who are in Christ is now true for you. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the truth of the gospel. And while I can't teach it, I can keep proclaiming it. And my prayer is that you proclaim it too. That is what we do as the body of Christ. In this passage, in particular, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we see eight opposite statements. And I'm going to walk us through these verses statements, not verses, but verses, like Alabama, verses. Okay, sorry. Still in need of salvation, evidently, okay? These eight opposition statements are what are true of the believer because of Jesus. And so as we kick off, I'm going to go back through each verse, verse by verse, but these eight things I want to keep in mind as the gospel changes everything. The first is that we are living in transgressions and sins versus living in good works prepared by God. You see the difference. Those who are in Jesus now live in good works prepared by God instead of living in our transgressions and sins. The second is being of this world versus being of heavenly realms. It's a tension that we face as believers. The most obvious one here is death versus life. In the gospel, life always wins. That's it. Life always wins. The sinful nature versus union with Christ. The wrath of God versus the mercy of God. We're under the ruler of the world rather than seated with Christ. It's called the prince of the power of the air. We're going to talk about that. By nature versus by grace. 
And the last one is not from work versus from faith. And so as we wrestle with these things, we're going to go back and reread the text line by line and dive in. And I hope that these truths on the opposite side would be true for us today. Ephesians 2, verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 3, and then we're going to take a break, and we'll pick up in verse 4. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Like, there's not a period there, but if there's a period there, that truth remains true, okay? We, all of us, everyone in this room, this is what we have in common. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins, okay? This word dead in the Greek is nekros, which is how we, get, we identify a lot of dead things, right? We, we use that word necro in English as the prefix for dead stuff. What does it mean? It means actually dead. It doesn't mean like maybe dead or on the way to death or could possibly die at a later time. Or it doesn't mean dead but still could be resuscitated. It just means dead, dead. Lifeless, dead. Corpse, dead. That's what this word means. We are physically alive. Yes, I stand here. My, there's my heart, thank God, is still beating. My brain is still firing somewhat. But I'm alive. But if I'm apart from Christ, I'm alive physically, but I'm dead spiritually. And this is the tension that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. But what does it mean to be dead? What is death itself? The Bible's very, very clear that death is a result of sin. There was a time when death didn't exist. You know this. This is the very beginning of the Bible. It doesn't last long. God created. All things were good. There was life. It was great. And then, there was, then it was bad, right? We chose to be God rather than to be with God. And sin entered the world, and sin brought with it death. Necros. Dead death. Do you understand? When we talk about death in the gospel, it's a real death. Because for it to be real life, it must have been really dead. This is the transformation that we see in Christ. One of the realities, Tim Keller was kind of known for saying this, is you're far worse than you can ever imagine. Yeesh. Welcome to church if it's your first time. It's Stephen with the PH. Right? See? <laughs> we planned that. You're far worse than you could ever imagine. And yet you're far more loved in the gospel than you could ever dream of. That's the reality for us today. But this idea of living in sin is a reality that we still all wrestle with. If you catch me on a bad day, if you just snuck into my house at some point, you will see me lose my temper with my children. That is the truth. I hate it. I hope it dies. And together with my wife, we are slaying it every day. But it is true. If you catch me on 285, Monday through Friday, I'm upset with somebody else. Okay? Because all these millions of people who live in Atlanta have not learned to drive, and yet we give them a license anyways. If it was just me, it would be fine. I'm a perfect driver. We live with sin. This is what Paul's really, this is the tension, right? He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians who've forgotten that they were once dead in their sins and trespasses and have been made alive. But being made alive in this side of eternity, we still wrestle with sin. It's just the consequence no longer has rule and reign over our life. What we're getting to in verse 3 is no longer true for us. We have the sinful nature. What does that mean? What does nature mean? 
It means I didn't have to try for it. I was just naturally good at being sinful. I was born into this world broken. My parents are here sitting on the front row because they love me a lot, and they're sitting right next to a speaker, which really tells you how much they love me. They didn't teach me to fight with my brothers. They didn't teach me to steal Legos. They didn't teach me to take too much dessert. I learned that all on my own. Because in my very nature is this corruptness, this deadness that has me wanting and choosing daily sin in this world. And before you're like, man, who is this guy? And we let him be our pastor. Just know I'm talking about you too, okay? This is the reality of our nature. I'm a decent dad. I have not taught my son to hit my daughter. He's here, so sorry. We didn't talk about this. The daughter's also here today. But I we don't teach them to hit one another. You know, it's a, that's a bad parent would do that. And yet they inherently choose selfishness over being selfless. We all do this. And so as we begin to wrestle in the world, what do we do? As Christians, we have a hope. We have a truth. So I don't care what class you're sitting in, college students, like there is absolute truth. You might have to take astronomy a couple of times like I did, but there is absolute truth. Is that Christ lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. That death was my death. It was your death. He didn't stay dead. Praise God for that. The only thing that died was death. Satan, the prince of peace, took it right in the teeth. Not the prince of peace, the prince of the air, the power of the air. Right? This is the reality of the gospel. This nature, though, that we have was given to us in Adam. Romans 3, you know this verse. All have sinned and fallen what? Fallen short of, but fallen short of what? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's his very presence. We have no business standing in the presence of God because of sin, but God, right? We see this again, the, the, the penalty of sin. This is Romans 6. The wages of sin is what? Say it. It's a hard word to say. If you're new to Christianity, just know that we're, we get weirder. We talk about dead things coming alive. Because this is the central message of the Bible. All other Christian doctrine hinges on this Christian doctrine. What you do with Ephesians 2 impacts everything else. You want to you know about eschatology? Guess what we're going to read tonight? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Because there is a hope here for a future that we haven't realized yet. Study of last things. Spurgeon, who's one of my favorites, he has this little line. When he's talking about the consequences of sin, right? The wage of sin is death. So there must be a death. And he says this. It says either he, being Christ, must die, or I must die, or justice might die, must die. One of those things has to die. And God, in his grace and sovereignty to us, chose to send his son to receive the death. He could have, he could have forfeited his justice. But if he forfeits his justice, he also has to forfeit his love. And this is what Paul is getting at in the hinge in verse 4. These six little letters, but God. This is the gospel. If we could, I could do an entire sermon on just those two words. But God. Now, 
a lot of us in the room, we come in as even Christians, and there are things in this world that are hard. There are things that maybe make us doubt or maybe make us fearful or maybe make us, I don't know if I really think that this thing that he talks about week after week is true. That's real life. It's real life. It's these two words that give us all hope but God, comma. And then here comes all the work that God is going to do. Romans 6, 23, the one that says the wages of sin is death, it doesn't stop there. It's not the whole story. There's a but there too. It keeps going. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The prince of the power of the air never gets enthroned as king. Satan doesn't win. All authority and all reign, all rule that Satan has was given to him by God. Read your Bible. Read the story of Job. Everything that Satan does to Job was allowed by God. So he has a little sandbox. He's not allowed to go outside the sandbox. So everything that he has, the prince of the power of the air, that's it. That's all he's got. And when Christ victoriously, triumphantly came out of that grave, his little sandbox went away. Death, Satan, evil, and sin died that day. So verse 4, let's pick up reading, but God being what? Rich in Mercy. What does it mean to be rich? I know this sounds super fundamental. I don't mean it to be fundamental, but we like to read fast and we don't like to hear. What does it mean to be rich? Right? We all have like a rich uncle or someone in our life who's richer than we are. Or you eat a chocolate cake and it's too rich. I don't know if that's such a thing. I, the chocolate's not my jam, but right? You put peanut butter in there though. Right? What do we mean when we say rich? It's an abundance of, it's loaded with chocolate. God being rich in mercy. This is who he is. I don't, I don't know who God is. I wrestle with that. I, I don't know if I, if I understand who he is. You want to know who he is? It's, he is rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is, is not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve as sinners? This is what Paul was just writing to the church in Rome. We would deserve death. We were children of wrath. But God, because he is rich in mercy, what does he now do? Being rich in mercy because of the great, what's that letter, four-letter word? Love. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead. We like to forget that part. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By what? By grace. By grace, you have been saved. So we have mercy, God's character. He's rich in it. He has an abundance of it. It doesn't run out. He doesn't have a limit to his mercy. Praise God. Now, it is by grace that we, it's by grace that I have been saved. It's by grace. 
verse 6, raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is from last week. In Christ Jesus. Why do we take a seat? Because the work is done. Christ does all of his work, and again, you know what he does? It's like the guys, that, so if you've been to my house, and some of you were here this past week, there's a massive construction site next door. It's the worst, and they finish at the end of every day, and you know what they do? They take a seat in my driveway, but they take a seat. Not better, I just, I can't see, right? Their work is done, and they take a seat. Christ did a work, and he took a seat where he belongs, a seat that he rightfully gave up so that we could also be seated with him. And now we sit, not because of any work that we did, but because God is rich in mercy, and by grace, he gave us a seat. Great working definition of grace is unmerited favor. I talk a lot about my kids just because it's the stage of life that I'm in, and I really want them to hear every week how much I love them and how much I want them to see Jesus. I love them because of nothing that they've done. I do. And if there's one truth that they would take week after week, sometimes I'm going to make fun of them. That's not the truth I want them to hear. I, I make fun of them because I love them. It is that there is nothing that they can do to make me love them more, and there is nothing that they could do to make me love them less. And I'm not a perfect father. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that. So we get the what, and now we get the so what. All right, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, back to eschatology, okay? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is why we are here. This idea of we have been made new, is a, uh, the, the biblical word that we like to use is we've been regenerated, right? We have been brought back to life, okay? We were once dead and now we are made alive. We've been justified by the work of Christ. We are being sanctified, which means we're being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus. Sanctification, though, is always a matter of obeying the Spirit while crushing the flesh, Right? We, we're still being made like Jesus. We say all the time, like, sanctification is a painful process of learning how sinful you actually were and how great Christ actually is. And then one day, when Christ returns and makes all things new, we will be glorified and our salvation will be complete and eternal and forever and we will never, ever be apart from the glory of God, from the very presence of God. So here's what I want you to see. Kids, if you have your little sheet, you want to take it out, Okay? That God initiates our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation. So don't ever get it backwards, okay? This is how we are saved. Salvation has been fully and finally given to the Christian, to the believer, by grace, through faith, the end. Okay? But we've been saved for a purpose. Listen to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through 
faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? You have to keep it in the right order. Should Christians do good work in the world? Are Christians saved by doing good work in the world? No. So listen, tired Christian in the room, if you keep showing up to church, thinking that coming to church is going to save you, you can stop. If you're going to the soup kitchen or you're giving jackets to the homeless people, those are great things. They can't save you. There are no amount of good things that are going to erase the bad things that you've already done. There's only one good thing that can do that, and it's the death of someone else. This is the gospel. So should we do good works? Absolutely, we should do good works. We have been saved by grace through faith, and that faith produces good works in that order and only in that order. I hope you never miss that. So what do dead people boast about? Because there's this element of boasting, right? I was thinking this week of like, how do you communicate death to people who are physically alive? Right? And we all have experienced death. Someone maybe in more realities or maybe in closer proximity to what we're, like where we are today. But some of us maybe haven't. Right? I remember when death knocked on our door for the very first time. I was a little kid and my aunt died. And I remember being like, whoa, hold on. She was like a 30-something, like young 30s, younger than I am today. I'm not that old, but I was young, I'm older than she was when she died. And I remember not understanding what to do with it. Like, I didn't get it. How, I don't, like, ask the question, how could a good God take her? You've asked that question, I know you have. The reality is, for all of us, this idea of what do dead people boast about, they don't boast about anything. They're dead. It's like if you, if we have a lot of college students in the room, okay? Uh, what, one of the things that college students are running to quicker than they're running to graduation is getting married. Okay? It is a real thing. All right? If you sent all of your wedding invitations to a cemetery, guess how many people are going to show up? Three. You and your fiance and me. Or Andrew or Jared, right? One of our pastors. We're going to show up. There's going to be nobody else there. Because dead people can't accept invitations. Dead people don't respond to things. They must first be given life. Lazarus. Do you know the story of Lazarus? Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, is the brother of Martha and Mary. Lazarus dies. They send word to Jesus, hey, look, Lazarus ain't doing good. Like, need you to come help. Like, Jesus, you need to get over here quick because our boy is dying. Jesus waits. And what happens to Lazarus? He dies. But his death doesn't cause Jesus to come quickly. Like, it's four days Lazarus is dead. The the text, the scriptures say that Lazarus was stinking, like his flesh had begun to rot. Lazarus was dead, dead. For real dead, okay? Jesus goes to Lazarus' body, his corpse, his necros, and what does he say? He says, get up. But first, Lazarus had to be made alive before he could respond to the get up. The Spirit of God comes and gives Lazarus a new life. A new life. 
And then Lazarus responds and he gets up and he walks out. He's resurrected. Life over death. Now Lazarus didn't stay alive. He eventually died, we assume, because he hasn't checked into church in a while. But there is coming a day when all of our dead, stinking, rotten corpses will be made new. Will be made alive in the work of Christ by grace. These two statements, how is one saved, is the question that we keep coming to. How are we saved? And this passage gives a very clear definition that salvation does not come by works. Why? Don't we want to work for it? If we could work for it, we could accomplish it. And if we could accomplish it, we could put it on our to-do list on Gmail, and then we could check it off when we were done. Glimpse into my personality. But you can't. You are saved by grace. You receive what you do not deserve. Are we saved by faith? No. We are not. We are saved by grace through faith. You are saved through faith. What is faith? Hebrews gives us a great definition. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I have a whole thesis on who I think wrote it, which we're not going to get into today, but faith is the belief in the things unseen. That's what the Bible says about faith. So what is unseen? Well, if, if you're walking through life dead, what is not seen? Life. Life. Like one of the greatest joys in all of our like human life is seeing new life, right? Seeing little babies born. And this church has been blessed with a gazillion little babies. It's joyous because it reminds us of this gospel. It reminds us that life is better than death. It reminds us of our need for Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. God is working on us and in us so that he might do a work through us. In that order, all the good works that I do apart from Christ are futile and will eventually pass away. You know, one of the things that we hear a lot in contemporary culture is like so-and-so actor or so-and-so actress, like, did you know that they build wells in Africa? You're like, that's great. They're building death holes because until we bring the gospel, until the gospel is there, all the good works are temporary. They are not final. They are not, you may have tapped water. You did not tap life. This is the reality of the world that we live in. And so here's the question I keep wrestling with as a professional Christian. So what are we, what are we doing? If this is true, which I firmly believe that it is, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then what are we doing? We're telling this story over and over and over again because the world says it's not right. The world says you can earn it. The world says you can do it. The world says if you try hard enough or study hard enough or grit hard enough or you bear white knuckle hard enough, like you can do it. That is the anti-gospel. There's freedom here. So then the, the other question is like, well, if, if God is the giver of salvation, then why do we do evangelism? Here's why we do evangelism, folks. Because we were asked to, we were commanded to <laughs> go to the ends of the earth, baptize and teach him all that I have commanded. I, I don't know who the spirit of God has made alive or not. 
That's why every week I'm going to come up here and I'm going to say, hey, look, Jesus is over here and he's better. I don't know who in the room, even in our little room, who the Spirit of God has made alive. But I know that he's made some of us alive. And for some of us, we need to be reminded of the gospel, and for, some, for others, we need to be pointed to the gospel. At the foundation, the motivation of all of this, this is, John Calvin says this, he says, love is what moved God to save us. Why did God do that? Why would he send his son to die? The way that, he, you know, he could have died a quick and easy death. Jesus could have, but he didn't. It was brutal, and in that time, it was the most brutal way to die. Because in his dying, what he was doing wasn't just giving up his heartbeat. What he was doing was crushing death. Crushing it. So that the death that we deserve is no longer true for us. Love is what moved God to save us. But he hasn't just saved us from our sin. He's also saved us to himself for others. This is why when we come to Jesus, when, we're, when we are redeemed, when we're saved by grace through faith, he doesn't go... And take us up to his presence. Because he's given us a work to do. And brothers and sisters, like this is, what we, this is why we are here. This is why when, when I say, hey, listen, you should invite your friends to church. Not because we're, it's like we have a couple empty seats right here. They're usually full, but they're not this week. It's not so we can fill those seats. It's because there's somebody among us who's been dead, has been brought to life. And they need to hear and respond to the gospel. Dead people don't hear. Dead people don't respond. Only living people can do that. So we're going to go out together as a band of misfits, and we're going to find who, who is God redeeming? Who is God making alive? And let's invite them in to a better story. The gospel changes everything. Literally everything. There's not a square inch in all of the universe that God doesn't say, that's mine. And that includes your wicked heart. That is the beauty of the gospel. It changes everything. Listen to these remain. These are just a few things that I wrote out this week as I'm going through those eight opposition statements from the beginning. If the gospel literally changes everything, what does that mean for me? Listen to these. Some of these are in songs that we sing. In fact, we're going to sing a song in just a minute called But God. I was lost, but God found me. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? This is, I love this. Well, maybe this is for another day. I don't know. It's not in my notes, and we're getting close on time, but I don't really care. So this is Luke 15. The, the prodigal son is there are two sons, right? And the older son, who is the legalist. Anybody else in the room? Okay. Um, thank you for that, the two of you. We'll have a meeting after church. And then you have the younger son, who is just a tyrant. And he goes and he asks the father for an inheritance. He takes it all, and then he blows it, Right? And what happens when the, when the prodigal, when the younger son comes back home? Who goes and meets him? The father does. And the text says he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. And he says, we're going to throw a party. It's going to be better than any other party because my son who was lost is now found. That's this. That's my story. That's your story. I was an orphan, but God has adopted me into his family. I was wrecked, but God restored me. I was empty, but God filled me with his spirit. I was a captive, but God has set me free. 
I was broken, but God has made me a new creation. I was bankrupt, but God has given me an inheritance. I was a sinner, but God has made me a saint. I was dead, but God has made me alive. This is why we are here. This is why we do church. This is why we gather together week after week. Grace is a gift given by good and loving Father. Faith is a gift to be worked out in the world for the good of others. Salvation itself is a gift. Would you pray with me as we go before our Father this morning, the giver of these good gifts? Father, we're very humbled, grateful, excited, maybe a little giddy that these words are true. That all the things that we believe about you, all the things that you've revealed to us about yourself are true because this is true. That while we were dead, you made us alive. That while we were sinners, you came to, down to us. You sent your son so that we could know you, that we could be in right relationship with you. Father, I pray that for maybe those of us in the room who we pretty frequently forget these truths, would you help just remind us of those two words, but God, but God. Help us to find freedom and courage and conviction to share this story with the ones who long to hear it. I pray for those in the room who maybe they're, they're walking in a little dead. Pray that they would find life this morning. I pray now as we respond in at the table by taking the body and blood of Christ, by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, God, that you would just echo in, that you would just echo into our hearts, that you make broken things whole things, that you make dead things living things. We are thankful most of all for your son Jesus. This morning we pray in the power of his beautiful name. All God's people said, amen. Our communion tables are on either.